The HD Insights Podcast is brought to you by the Huntington Study Group. The Huntington Study Group is a nonprofit research organization dedicated to conducting clinical research in HD and providing critical training on HD to healthcare professionals. Funding for this podcast is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you and sponsorship grants from organizations like Genentech, Teva Pharmaceuticals, Neurocrine Biosciences, Vasinex, and Wave Life Sciences. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the HD Insights Podcast. As always, I'm Kevin Gregory, Director of Education, Communication, and Outreach at the Huntington Study Group, and your host for this program. We're pleased to bring you this podcast as the first one we've recorded amidst the full outbreak of the COVID-19 virus. Uh, We realize this is a challenging time for everyone, so we hope to continue providing regular podcast releases as an alternative for our audience. Even if it's only a 30 to 60 minute break from all that's going on, maybe that'll be helpful for you. And to the extent we have guests that can help provide perspectives to the HD community for dealing with this type of unprecedented crisis, well, then perhaps that can be helpful too. On this episode, we spoke with Dr. Mary Edmondson. Dr. Edmondson currently serves as chair of the HSG Provider Education Committee, but her role in HD advocacy, particularly in the North Carolina region, spans several decades, from helping with the beginnings of her local HDSA chapter, to starting up HD Reach, Dr. Edmondson's family connection and her personal experiences really helped shape her drive to serve the community. She's certified in internal medicine and psychiatry, which really makes her uniquely qualified to manage the psychiatric, behavioral, and medical complications of Huntington disease. And I believe to lend her thoughts on mentally dealing with the current added complication of the health crisis that is manifesting with with this coronavirus. It's a conversation I thoroughly enjoyed, and I think you'll enjoy hearing Dr. Edmondson tell her story. So now, here's our conversation with Dr. Mary Edmondson. Well, Dr. Edmondson, thank you for joining the podcast today. These are these are some surreal times, but uh, appreciate you coming on, and, and hopefully we have a you know really nice discussion to get people's uh, minds off of uh, the, the world around them and, and learn about more about you and um, what you're doing and uh, in the realm of Huntington's disease. Yeah, well, it's my pleasure. I'm happy to happy to be here today. And Dr. Edmondson, so just for background, why don't we start with um, your involvement and, and how you got started in Huntington's disease? What specifically is, is your connection to HD and, and what got you started out into your current role? So um, when I was a junior in college, um, I got a package of materials from my brother one day. And um, as I opened it, all these pamphlets filled out, you know, spilled out from the Committee to Combat Huntington's Disease, which is the predecessor organization of the Huntington's Disease Society of America. So I sat down, it was, you know, rainy day, Saturday, and I just sat down and read them all. And as I did, I realized that my dad had absolutely had Huntington's and, and likely had had it for 10 years, which explained 
you know, years of job losses and, you know, movement from one part of the country to the other. And, you know, just that downward drift that people who have um, mental or cognitive uh, or even physical impairments, you know, what they experience as they uh, go through the early stages of a disease when you don't know exactly what's going on. So um, that became my journey my lifelong journey really to understand what Huntington's is and to get my head sort of inside the, the insides of neurons and inside the brain and inside families and all that other, all those other aspects of Huntington's that are so important. So, you know, my first trip was to the stacks, um, the library where um, I was going to school and I pulled out a whole bunch of ancient neurology texts and and they described the worst version of Huntington's I could have humanly imagined, which was violence and divorce and hypersexuality and compulsive gambling and you know it just your worst nightmare of what um you know at that time in my life and you know I was you know 21, 22 years old you know, it just, it was in my very naive understanding of the world, it, it, it was, you know, craziness. And, but it didn't match what I understood about my dad at all. My dad wasn't like that at all. I mean, he had moments where he became very irritable and unreasonable and that he needed help in a way I, that did not make any sense to me. Uh, and he, you know, had gait problems and other things that made him look drunk. So, you know, there was a lot of embarrassment, you know, as, as a teenager. So, um, but, but he was never like that. I mean, he was, he was never, he never demonstrated what, like I said, in my naive mind was insanity. So I'm like, well, okay, so if this is what's down the road. I, I guess I better go figure this out a little bit more. So I started, um, going to see like human beings. So I went to see doctors and um, the first person I went to go see was his doctor who wouldn't talk to me based on patient physician privilege. Um, and, you know, multiple members of my siblings kind of got the same reaction. He said, I can't tell you whether your dad has Huntington's disease or not, but you don't have anything to worry about because it's X-linked recessive, meaning it would just be or Y-linked recessive, which means it would just affect men, and which was completely untrue, of course. Um, and then I went to go see a really nice um, neurologist in private practice who examined me, and, and a very kind guy um, examined me and told me that I didn't have any signs of Huntington's disease, and he knew that because my eyebrows were plucked too perfectly. And just saying, I've ne I had never plucked my eyebrows a day in my life by that point. So as much as I appreciated his kindness, I also knew he didn't exactly know what he was talking about. And the third person that I went to was an academician who did my genogram and examined me, you know, with a much more uh, like a motor disorder exam. And she said, well, I don't see any signs of Huntington's disease. So what can I do for you? And it wasn't like what can I do for you? Like, you know how people lean into that question, what can I do for you? It was more like, uh, I, I don't have anything to offer you, so what do you expect me to do about this? And so I was really disappointed in what I 
got from humans who I thought would know more than me. So I went back to those pamphlets from the Committee to Combat Huntington's Disease, and I realized that this woman by the name of Marjorie Guthrie ran the, the, the organization. And I thought, well, what have I got to lose by writing her? She's likely not going to write me back, but, you know, really, what have I got to lose by dropping her a letter? And so I did, and I, I you know, told her that I was a junior in college and that I just found out my dad had Huntington's and that that I couldn't find what I thought was accurate information and I was struggling with planning my life. And did she have any ideas? Um, and I shortly learned that Marjorie Guthrie was not the kind of woman that you would just say, what should I do? Because she would give you something to do. Um, so what she suggested was that we form the first meeting of patients in North Carolina. and we had a couple of conversations about what I needed to do um, in order to make that meeting happen. And so my, my first stop um, in that endeavor was to go to the chair of neurology where in the school that I was going to. And I, you know, I started my elevator speech and he stopped me immediately and he said, look, I know you are at risk for Huntington's disease and I'm really sorry about that. But there's nothing I can do to help you. There's nothing I can do to help anybody who has Huntington's disease. And quite frankly, what I think you're doing is unethical because you're going to bring all these people together and they're all going to talk and they're going to get in touch with all of this whole experience of what their family's been to and going through. And it's going to be like ripping a scab off somebody's pain and being absolutely unable to do anything about it. So I really don't think you should do this meeting at all. So, which was really startling to me to, and, and actually really made me mad, but it's, it's an, um, that has become in a way like my gold standard question. Like if I do this, am I absolute, am I really doing something substantive for people with Huntington's disease or, or, you know, really something substantial for my own family? So it was, even though it was, you know, unpleasant and it made me mad. Um, you know, I did learn something from it. And I actually learned something from every one of those people that I went to go see about, you know, the fact that you can be a very compassionate listener, but if you don't know the facts, you're not helping somebody. And if you, if you disseminate bad information, that's kind of even worse. And if you tell somebody there's literally nothing they can do about a disease or a problem of, of any type in their life, there's always choices to be made. There's always choices to be made in life. And so, you know, from those early encounters that I had with people, I formed some really pivotal um, opinions about Huntington's, one of which is that there's a real big difference between trying to cure a disease and trying to treat a disease. And I sort of right from the start made the decision that I wanted to be on the treatment side, whether there was a cure or not. Um, so anyway, back to the Marjorie Guthrie thing. So um, I ended up finding one of my professors, um, my professor in the chemistry department who was interested in helping me. And so he went to the Belk Foundation and raised the money that we needed for the meeting. And we found a guy who was doing research at Duke. And so he set up the location and 
um, my co my friends and colleagues in sort of the pre-med group there um, all got together with me and we, you know, we put together all the pamphlets and we did all the marketing, you know, all of that. Anyway, so in March or April of 1981, we had 100 people at Duke. It was the first meeting ever of, of people and it was so incredibly eye-opening. It was um, it was eye-opening for all of us that attended it, and, and it was the pivotal moment for my family, meaning it was the first time we openly started talking about Huntington's disease. We weren't talking about dad. We were talking about Huntington's disease, and it, it formed this beautiful bridge between the fear and um, secrets in my family to a point where we had something to talk about that was kind of close to what was wrong with dad, but it wasn't exactly talking about dad. So it was, it was I think, a really good way to sort of break the secrets in my family. And fortunately, my mother met um, a woman there whose husband had Huntington's, and they became lifelong friends um, and supported each other for, you know, decades. So it was, it was wonderful. But so the people that came to that meeting included Marjorie and Ira Schulson, who was a young investigator, you know, from your town, from Rochester, and um, George Paulson from Ohio State, and uh, Nancy Wexler, who got off an airport, an airplane from Venezuela to be at our meeting. So she, she was real excited about what she had seen there. She was young, she was beautiful, she was openly at risk, and really um, was a, a model of how I could choose to live my own life. Um, that, you know, maybe I had more to contribute than I thought I did, you know? Um, anyway, so the, really the most, most difficult thing I had to do was decide whether or not to go to medical school, because um, I know that the decisions that physicians have to make um, are often um, can they have implications for patients. They can they can be unsafe decisions. You can give people unwise dis, um, advice, but most of all, you know, if if I did something that had that was procedural in nature because I hadn't decided what I wanted to do yet, you know, like if I wanted to be a surgeon or a GP or I wanted to be an obstetrician, you know, I would also have technical skills that would require my hands. And, um, and, and I, I think that most of the people during my, you know, 35 years ago, when we all went to med school, we all felt like we had a societal responsibility, you know, for the public health of the people that we took care of. And so I was very worried about whether or not it was fair for me to go to med school. So that was the crux of, of my personal ethical dilemma. And so, and Marjorie knew that. So when, like in the afternoon, like we had this, all this informational stuff in the morning and then the afternoon was more for questions and answers. And at one point, um, George Paulson posed this question to the audience. He said, so, you know, this pre-med society from this obscure school in North Carolina that nobody's ever heard of, um, really, has worked, you know, all these months to bring all of us here to talk about a very rare disease. Don't you think that it's likely that one of these pre-med students is at risk for Huntington's disease? Now, 
mind you, I'd been very quiet about my personal life at, at that point. I, I was still not ready to talk to my colleagues about it. And so I'm like up in the top of the theater, just like trying to hide because, you know, I was leading this thing and, you know, my friends were kind of looking at me anyway. Um, and it, so he said, um, you know, I, I sit on an admissions committee at Ohio State and we get lots and lots of applications from very qualified people. You know, if you knew somebody who was at risk who was applying for medical school, would you pass them by because of that? Would you take a risk on that student? You know, what what would we do? And um, Ira said, uh, probably the most important thing um, and the most difficult thing anybody has ever said around me. He said, yep, it's true that somebody who's at risk for Huntington's disease could have a foreshortened career. But isn't it equally true that the very experience of being at risk and the very experience of um, becoming kind of a patient early in your life, you know, knowing that you had this, this health-related risk and maybe even health-related symptoms, you know, maybe the experience of that would, would allow that person to become an even better physician than they would otherwise and that they would be able to contribute more in a, in a shortened career than many people you know, contribute in a real long career. Um, and, you know, that was just like the permission that I needed. It was, um, you know, it was a, a bunch of very um, prominent healthcare providers and investigators who basically gave me permission to lead a responsible life, a life of my choosing. Um, and I know how incredibly fortunate I was to have had that experience really early in my life because not everybody who's at risk gets permission to lead a responsible life. And not certainly very few people meet Ira Schulson and Nancy Wexler and, you know, people of that caliber in one day. So, and, you know, Marjorie taught me how important advocacy was and, um, Ira, you know, set the bar very high for me um, to work hard in my career. So that that's how I got started. It's a long story, but I think it's an its importance is a couple of things. One is that those first interactions that I had with those four physicians, each one of them taught me something that I've carried through in my career. So you can have the best bedside manner in the world, still be just sort of an average doctor. And you can have all the knowledge in the world and not be a good communicator and still be an average doctor. Um, and you can have all the empathy in the world and it, it's just nothing more than what you would get from your next door neighbor. And, and, the, and those are not the things that we should, we should focus on a combination of all of those things um, as healthcare providers and most specifically for people who care for, for Huntington's families. So, and you know, the, the having, having somebody believe in me that, that even though I was facing down a horrible enemy that, that I could still contribute and be part of, of you know, my community and society and, and part of the medical field. So those are the, th those are the little nuggets of things that I think formed my early opinions and um, insights into Huntington's. And I think, 
my career as an internist, which is what I did for the first 10 years of my career, and then as a psychiatrist, you know, ever since then, I have looked, um, every time I have seen a patient with something, I've looked for what I could learn from that patient and that family and my colleagues about how to take care of Huntington's patients better. And, you know, fortunately, after doing my psychiatry residency at Duke, I, I reconnected with Ira in the Huntington study group and uh, just knew that was sort of going to be my professional people, you know, and have greatly in, enjoyed uh, the, the people that I've learned um, and, and worked with through the Huntington study group since then. So long story, but there was a few lessons in there. Well, it's a great story, and I think it's really impactful from the standpoint of you using those those first four physicians that you encountered as motivation um, rather than being set back by it or um, just feeling defeated by it. And, um, you know, I, I think hearing, you know, the story about that powerhouse group of people that came down to the first uh, group meeting that you had in North Carolina uh, really couldn't have been better timed for you. And I think, you know, the, the other thing, Dr. Edmondson, that I kind of wanted to lead into, and I think this was a fantastic um, context for it, is you then um, went on to, you know, uh, and you're still doing a lot of work in the advocacy field. So your next step kind of was uh, working to form HD Reach, correct? Um, actually, the first thing I did was my brother and I started um, a chapter of HDSA in 1997. I think that's when we got our charter. And um, when CHDI was formed, um, one of their grant recipients was Don Lowe, who's a neurobiologist um, from Duke. Now he's at the NIH. But he and I got to know each other, and, and we had lunch together periodically, and he had just gone to one of their meetings and he, he came back and he said, you know, Mary, <clears throat> we, um, we don't need to raise money for research anymore. I mean, they have more money than, you know, we have hit the jackpot with this organization and we don't need to raise money for basic science research anymore. What do you think we should do? And I said, so I thought about some of the limitations of our particular chapter. Um, one of them was that we didn't really have, well, we didn't have a center of excellence. We had one person, um, Francis Walker, who did work at um, Bowman Gray, Wake Forest. And, um, but we had no, there was no center of excellence. There weren't social workers. You know, there weren't physical therapists. There were no psychiatrists no psychologist. I mean, there was no, there were people that there around the state that did, did things, but there was no actual center that had everything. But we had all the pieces. We had a genetic counselor. We had two neurologists. You know, I'm a psychiatrist. And the big thing we thought was missing was a social worker. So we got together with the chapter and we got together with all of the medical leaders around the state, Don Lowe and I did, and we got we got together with 
um, a couple of family, we asked some family members who were real prominent to join that meeting. It was about 10 people. And we asked the question, Don and I asked the question again, what should we do? And, and everybody said, well, you know, we need, a, we need a center of excellence in our state. We need it, if, even if it, all it is is virtual, we need to have a way to tie all these professionals together. We need a way that a patient or a family can, there's going to be somebody on the other end of a phone call, you know, Monday through Friday. And we need to have social workers who understand mental health to help us triage those people so they get to the right place at the right time. So that's, HD Reach was primarily formed around that concept that we wanted to provide, we wanted to create a network of providers and resources for Huntington's families in our state where um, we could streamline how they got services, we could streamline their referrals, and that we could assist the people that we referred patients to by collecting a lot of basic data, um, you know, sort of a basic data base on each patient so they wouldn't have to work quite as hard to gather all that information ahead of time. So that, that was really the, the premise behind um, HD Reach. And it, so we were formed in May of 2009, so 10 years ago. And we hired our first social worker, I think in April, um, Sarah Dawson, and basically gave Sarah the freedom to create the knowing what our vision was, letting her create what she felt was what needed to be done. And Sarah had come from Easter Seals and had been a person who was on the front end of when people came in, meaning she did their initial assessment and triaged them. So she was really the perfect person to do it. And you know, our support group loved her and um, she just did a phenomenal job and turned what was just an idea into a real reality. And um, so then we thought, okay, so we pulled this off in Raleigh, what, you know, the RTP area, how are we going to scale this? And I'll tell you, great ideas are only great ideas until you can scale them. And um, it's, it's so hard to do it because every community is so different, but that that's, Basically, what we've been trying to do for the past 10 years is to figure out how to scale those services and, and uh, get that them so that there's somebody, someone can talk to within an hour drive, you know, all across the state. Now, we, we really haven't found the perfect scalable model yet, but we keep trying. And um, we recently hired a new executive director who's got just tons of energy and very wise. And I'm very hopeful that she's going to figure that out. I think it's going to involve technology and we're going to, you know, other things like that. And, you know, in the past 10 years, there's been, you know, the, the healthcare community itself is dynamic. The, our original genetic counselor left and went into um, industry work and, Dr. Walker has just recently retired, and we've got new people that are, are, are coming into the field, both at Wake Forest and in Charlotte, and um, probably the biggest thing that we've learned is that we really need to have um, sort of a, uh, a physician champion in every region so that, you know, it, does, it doesn't do any good to say, let me help you when you have no resources. So, 
that's what we're we're doing now is um, in really in conjunction with the HSG, we're we're planning how we're going to reach people over the next two to three years, so that our manpower um, and and our advocacy community, both you know with the chapter and with all the providers, does really create that network, and that when when not if but when there's um, a new there's you know a positive trial that comes by that our community will be prepared to help them get where they need to go. And that I, that's actually what I was going to ask you too for any of the members of our listening audience that may be looking to start similar efforts in their areas, you know, what what were some of the biggest lessons learned that you've had in, in trying to scale? Now, you mentioned having a physician advocate in each region. Is there anything else that, that people really need to consider or that, you know, you were surprised to encounter in the course of, of trying to set this up? Um, oh, it's so much harder than you think it's going to be. Um, so much harder. Um, I think that, uh, I think the one of the most important things that you can do is give people the information they need at the time they need it. And that information might be what's the best way to treat anxiety in um, a pre-manifest or a prodromal person all the way to um, what do I do with this, you know, when I'm worried about somebody's safety. So there's, although Huntington's is, a, is an uncommon disease, it's a constellation of a number of problems that other specialties have solved. So gait disturbances have been solved in movement disorder clinics, or they know the best thing they can do for people who have gait instability, for example. And psychiatrists know a whole lot about how to manage um, capacity, you know, people's ability to make their own decisions and um, about depression and suicide and how you measure and manage people who are aggressive and how you risk stratify them, um, you know, uh, in a somewhat, um, somewhat scientific way. You can't perfectly predict risk, but there, we, there's some guideposts along the way that are really helpful. So that's going to mean that those providers in those locations are going to have to be educated and they're going to have to be educated about all aspects of the disease. And then when they're in the middle of taking care of a patient, they need to be able to access that information, which is what, you know, you and I kind of are working on. <clears throat> so um, that's one thing. The second thing that we learned is that you really need to have a licensed clinical social worker. Um, and that social workers go into social work because they um, prefer some margin of autonomy. And so the medical model of a doctor writing an order and you have to do it because I wrote that order, that doesn't work with social workers. Um, it's a leadership style that does not work with social workers. It really has to be team-based. Um, there, there has to be people within their, their professional Huntington's community, whatever that might be. You know, like if they go to the um, HDSA social workers 
meeting or they go to the Huntington study group and they, they meet other social workers from other places around the country, they, you know, social workers can create their own little network of, of people that they rely upon for their difficult cases. And those are the people that you email and say, hey, I'm struggling with this patient. Can you help me figure out what to do? And, um, but beyond that, you need to give social workers as much autonomy, just like we gave Sarah free reign to take that idea and create whatever it was, whatever she wanted it to be. Um, I think you have to, you have to give them the freedom to do their job um, and especially not necessarily in a medical model. <clears throat> That's one of those things I'd have to probably sit down with people individually and discuss what that means because I don't know that most healthcare providers realize that a mental health model, which is a biopsychosocial model of how you assess and intervene for patients, is different than the medical model. And for, for the two specialties to be able to communicate, we need to understand that we have a different format about putting people together and we use very different language. And so, um, and that's the kind of thing that a group like HD Reach ought to be able to, to bridge those kinds of communication gaps um, so that everybody gets what they need. But both from the point of view of a provider and from the point of view of a family. Um, the third thing that I think is that, you know, we when we started out, we were a nonprofit and we got lots of advice about how to be a nonprofit and a lot of advice about how to present yourself in a way so that people will give you money, um, which was good and bad advice. It, you know, it you can't do. It, you know, money is scarce everywhere, and it's going to be even more scarce in the next couple, three, four, six months, who knows. And, and that can either be something that terrifies you as a nonprofit, or it, it challenges you to create things people in for-profit spaces wouldn't take the risk on. So if, if we completely could solve this, this issue that requires HD Reach to solve it, you know, if there was a business model for it that could at least break even, it would no longer need a nonprofit and charitable basis. It would be a for-profit company. So if you look at it that way, um, what you have to do is come up with, um, you know, good plans, good solutions that require a little bit of philanthropy and, and actually sort of support from multiple different ways, just like you would diversify your savings account or your, your, you know, your IRA. Nonprofits have to diversify their, their income streams as well. And um, I think that um, it, that part of it, the part of the business aspect of running a nonprofit was incredibly challenging to me, but also extremely helpful. And like nonprofits are different than businesses and nonprofits are different than health institutions. And, and in general, what they do is they fill gaps in services for which there is no market. And their job is to create that market so they go out of business. <laughs> that's, 
that's what a nonprofit ideally is supposed to do. So, but the, the beautiful thing is like the first year that we started HD Reach, I mean, I had panic attacks about how we were gonna get money and keep Sarah. I mean, I, I go to bed at night, I'm like, I don't know how to do this. I, I have no idea how to raise money. What are we gonna do? And so the first Christmas, we just said, well, we're going to send out a Christmas card and we're going to handwrite it so that people will actually open our envelopes and we'll, we'll wish them a good Christmas and let them know that we're there for Huntington's families and to join the effort. And after that, we, we always kept ahead of the, our payroll by, by doing that. The Huntington's community kept us ahead of our payroll and they did it because I think they were grateful for what we did and grateful for the help that we were able to give them um, and grateful that we got them where they needed to be, you know, at the time they needed it. And so it, it was quite a journey for me personally. I, I found out I was a terrible leader and that um, I had to change my ways and that I, didn't know how to run accounting and <laughs> there's just a whole lot of things I learned um, about running a business that I didn't know before um, and I'm really grateful I had that chance um, that's it's a real learning experience so that's what I would tell anybody who wanted to do something similar but you know mostly just find 10 like-minded people and sit around the kitchen table and decide what you want to do in what way you want to where you think you can make the big biggest difference for the people in your state and what are the things that really make sense for you like the process i went through to find knowledgeable people who could give me the information i needed to make decisions in my life i had to go find them and so it was near and dear to my heart to help people find that without as much trouble as i had to go through and i never wanted to see anybody go through the prodromal stages of huntington's that my dad went through that were just just horrible to watch for him. And I just never wanted to see anybody go through that again because, you know, there was treatment then and there's treatment now uh, so that people don't suffer as much. And, you know, even though we wait and we're going to wait for a little while longer, I hope it's only a little while, but you never know, you know, the reason that they trust, they test drugs in humans is because we don't know how it's going to work in humans. And so, um, you know, I think, wanting to help people now, wanting to treat people now, looking for ways to help people now, it, that's always going to be necessary. And um, so uh, that's sort of my, like, what's the right word? It's been my cause in my life. And I feel really, you know, fortunate that it came to me. I wouldn't have chosen it, <laughs> but it certainly came to me, so... We'll return to the interview on the HD Insights podcast in a moment. We hope that you're enjoying this episode. As a nonprofit organization, the Huntington Study Group relies on the generous support from the community and listeners like you to continue bringing you in-depth content on HD, like this podcast series. If you like what you're hearing and are interested in supporting HD Insights through a grant or donation, please contact us through our email address, info at hsglimited.org, or by calling toll-free at 1-800-487-7671. 
We greatly appreciate your support. And now, back to our episode. Dr. Edmondson, um, one of the things I, I want to talk with you about and get your thoughts on, especially in the current environment where we're dealing with the coronavirus or, or COVID-19, and you know, based on your experience in internal medicine and psychiatry and advocacy, what is, I, I expect that, you know, the sense of crisis for those in the HD community is going to be even further amplified. And, you know, not only dealing with, with HD um, and the, the symptoms or the concerns around it, but, you know, now you're also talking about a, a, a national emergency for different health-related issues. I, I'd really just like to hear your thoughts on, you know, what, patients or families can do to help cope with kind of this onslaught of information or, or you know, kind of uh, adverse or, or negative feelings that, that may be coming out, um, you know, in this type of environment? Well, I think that, um, so two comments. One is that I think that many HD caregivers are stretched to their limit already. Um, and that it's a little bit of a combination of not really wanting help, but also not being able to find help that, that makes the, the role of a caregiver so difficult. So I would, I would say to anybody who is struggling, whether it's a caregiver or somebody that has, you know, early Huntington's or somebody that's at risk, this is a very good time to expand your circle of people that you can talk to on a daily basis and reach out to if you need help. So, you know, all of a sudden, what Huntington's families live with all the time, which is social isolation, and to some extent not being fully understood by others, um, you know, everybody's in the same position now. I mean, we are all isolated from each other, at least by six feet. And most of us are staying at home. You know, we're not going out. We're going to the grocery store once a week and that's it. Um, and so I've, I've sort of noticed that I've started to grow this little group of people that I call every morning first thing, uh, just to see how they're doing and if they're feeling okay and what their plans are for the day. And, you know, are they doing all right? And and because nobody's at their job, most of them are at home and they'll answer the phone and we'll have a five or 10 minute conversation. And, you know, then all of a sudden the world seems like it's actually rolling on its axis, you know, because everybody's going through that sense of social isolation now that Huntington's families, uh, especially caregivers and people with you know, mid-stage or more advanced stages of Huntington's live with all the time. Um, so, so I think that's one um, thing that we need to be mindful of is to take a few extra minutes to call the people in our life that matter to us and for kids to call their dad, their parents, their dad, their mom, um, for parents to call their kids, for brothers to call sisters and sisters to call brothers and cousins and all of that. Um, and, you know, your neighbors and, you know, find crafty little ways of saying hello and I know you're alive um, kind of things. 
Um, so, so that's one thing. The other thing that, that this is my prediction actually, and that is that because Huntington's families are so incredibly resilient, they came up with, they come up with the most amazing solutions to problems sometimes. Like, um, I, I suspect that this is going to be just one more thing that they're going to have to be creative about and that because they've been creative about so many other things that are less worrisome and difficult as the problem of being in your house all day long or the problem of worrying about every sniffle and worrying all the time if you have a fever and um, you know the uncertainty of COVID-19 for the rest of the world is the same uncertainty that Huntington's families often live with day by day. And, um, and people at risk understand symptom checking really deeply. And so it's been interesting to me to watch sort of the health behaviors of the people around me in the way that they're coping with the COVID challenge, like cleaning up the you know, cleaning out the grocery store down the way and not being able to find vitamin C anywhere. And I mean, that's, people are doing that because they're trying to prepare. They're trying to prepare for the worst so that they can just live there, you know, so they can stop worrying about it. And I think Huntington's families have to do the same thing. They have to prepare the best way that they can. And do what they need to do to take care of themselves. And then they just live every day, one day at a time. And I just think that Huntington's families have to cope with that much earlier in life than other people do. Some people learn when they're a kid that they have to cope with that. And as a, as a teenager, as a young adult, long before their parents would, would otherwise get sick. So I think it's a I think for Huntington's families, it's a really great time to reflect on all the challenges that they have met with courage and energy and creativity. Ask themselves, well, how did I solve that problem and how can I apply that one to this problem? And there's some new opportunities that there have been there before. This whole thing of being connected to each other virtually instead of in person is, a, is an advantage right now, I think, for um, Huntington's families and would encourage everybody to figure out how to do it, me included. <laughs> so. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate your, your thoughts and insights on that. Dr. Edmondson, I, I do want to switch gears, you know, a, a little bit here and talk about your role with the Huntington study group and um, your, your current uh, service as uh, chair of the provider education committee, specifically the, the CME for HD program that uh, that you work on to help um, provide training to healthcare providers or caregivers, I, I want to talk about um, you know what, how you first got involved with that, what the motivation is for that, and uh, and kind of go from there. Um, sure. So back, I think it was two thousand and twelve. Um, our annual meeting was in Seattle and LaVon Goodman um, hosted it and she really wanted to have an educational program for local physicians that would grow their population of people who understand understood something about Huntington's. And so within the span of about three months, we put together 
you know, an educational program that sort of talked about the cardinal symptoms of Huntington's and stages and what kind of treatment you can give and that sort of stuff. And it was really well received. And more importantly, the faculty had a great time doing it. So I said, well, we need to do it again next year. And it just so happened that that next year was going to be in Charlotte, North Carolina. So I started early in the year with faculty trying to help them hone down what they really wanted to talk about and um, how they wanted to present it. And most of the ways that people presented it was the way that they would teach a med school class, frankly. And that's the way they were comfortable teaching. And, and all of our talks were that way. So the next year, I can't remember where we went, but we didn't put as much energy, I think that was Tampa, we didn't put quite as much energy into because there were like 70 people um, who showed up for our program because we worked really hard to market it. Um, so we didn't put quite as much energy into marketing um, that meeting and I, I think like 25 people showed up. So it was like, okay, so that's not gonna work. We are gonna have to actually work hard on this. So I gathered, um, I gathered the faculty earlier in the year and we had monthly calls. And as a group, we made a decision to do a different presentation style. And we decided that what we wanted to do was talk about what life was like for someone who was a gene expansion carrier from birth to death. So we talked about kids, we talked about at-risk youth, we talked about um, pre-manifest, non-manifest, prodromal disease, we talked about early Huntington's, mid-Huntington's, late Huntington's, and palliative care and end of life. And so what we wanted to give people was really the, the experience of what it's like to live with Huntington's if you're a human being with it. And um, what were the symptoms and what was, what was the, where did that data come from? So we held ourselves to a couple of standards. We, the first year we just did it to see how people liked it and they really liked that presentation style. The next year, what we did is uh, we said, okay, we're gonna go back, we're gonna update our slides, but this time we're gonna annotate them with references. So this is just not the world according to Mary, or this is not the world according to Martha, or the world according to Daniel. It's the world according to the Huntington Study Group, and it's the world according to our faculty. And a lot of educational programs are not, you know, like a, a paper presentation in a journal would be peer reviewed. Like there'd be three or four people who would review it and give comments or maybe even more. Um, and that's how, what we believe is fact, we publish it, give our peers a chance to, to acknowledge or criticize our results. And so we wanted, our educational program to be not only based in the literature, but also based on um, good people reviewing our work. And so we, we did that one and we recorded it and we put it online and we challenged every Huntington study group and their, the people who worked at that site to get everybody to take the course online. And um, you know this data probably better than I do, Kevin, but 
we, we also offered a scholarship for the person who made the most referrals. So the, we, I think the first month we did it, there were, well, am I right, 700 people? Or am I thinking about that? Were there 400 people? I don't know. But there were a huge number of people who took the, the course that first month. And there was a woman in Columbia who asked every one of her colleagues, every single one of them, to take the course. And so she won the prize for the most referrals. And so the HSG is is proud that we educated the country of Columbia about Huntington's disease that year. And so the important thing is we had these iterations of the program and we learned from one year to the next what was a, a good way to present the, the information, you know, where were our, um, what holes did we still need to fill and how could we make it better and better. And so what we decided after we did that um, that first one we put online, we decided we were going to do clinical cases. And this past year was the first time that we did those live. And now we're working on um, with a online case-based presentation company to help us put our um, stories about Huntington's by stage, same thing, you know, youth, um, at-risk people, prodromal, pre-manifest, non-manifest, diagnosis, um, the motor stages of Huntington's, and then, you know, end-of-life care and palliative care. So, but we're doing it in a case format. And, like, we've not worked with a company this professional before, and we've, like, never gotten something done this early in the year before, but I think that we're hoping for March or, I mean, April or may launch you know i figured out a while ago that it doesn't do you any good to have somebody to answer the phone if you can't refer them to somebody and you have to be able we have to increase the workforce we just have to um it's estimated that about 70 percent of people with huntington's and their families are not seen in centers of excellence either in hsg um, research site or an HDSA center of excellence and a great many people are cared for by community neurologists um, very few are, are cared for by psychiatrists and about 50% of people are cared for by their primary care physician and we have to find those people where they are and we have to provide them um, education so they can create one, they can learn, but they can also create their group of four or five or six people that they email and say, hey, I've got this really tough case. Do you have any ideas? Um, and that, so that's what I'm, I'm hoping will happen as a consequence of the CME for HD program is that at some point we'll, we'll actually have small groups inside states that can communicate with each other um, and um, share their struggles and their successes. What are um, from the in-person trainings that you've you've done at the HSG annual meeting? What are what are some experiences that stand with you um, from people that maybe that was their very first exposure to uh, anything related to HD um, through the training? Have there been any like 
uh, some light bulb moments that really resonated with you or some, you know, aha reactions or like just things that people were really stunned to, to learn in that setting? Um, so there were a couple of things, you know, I know the Charlotte meeting better than I know anything else. So um, for me, there were the most aha moments in that particular meeting, but we, um, we recruited our 75 people by getting every physician who had referred somebody to one of the centers of excellence. We, you know, people that um, both of our neurologists knew by word of mouth, people I, I knew um, who had displayed an interest in Huntington's. We, our genetic counselor went to their colleagues. We went to all the medical schools. We, um, we created a, a residency fellowship um, scholarship so that they could come in. We actually had one professor and four of their med students who came and spent the whole four days with us. Um, and I, it, watching them go through it, it was just, I just, that was the greatest thing. Um, that meeting, what we did is we had we spread it across three days. The, the first two days were half a day each of learning and networking with their colleagues. And then the, the Saturday was is uh, traditionally been family day. And it was almost like they learned all the didactic stuff um, about Huntington's, you know, and, and had a chance to interface with some of the HSG members and, and you know, thought leaders. But on Saturday, they saw the real patients. You know, and we we ran this marketing campaign where the guy who was working on it for us managed to get an article in the Charlotte paper like the Tuesday before the meeting. And we had 30 people, 30 families show up to that meeting who had never met another Huntington's family and had never met a doctor who knew anything about Huntington's disease. And it was amazing to watch them. And all of these people who had come to the meeting, you know, most of whom knew very, very little about Huntington's disease, um, watched that. They watched those 30 families show up. And I, it was, um, it was very touching. Um, it was just extremely touching. Uh, and, and also tough, because there were a couple people that had run out of sessions. They couldn't take, you know, they just weren't ready to hear certain things. And so, they also watched us run out after them, so um, so we could catch them before they left the building, and you know offer them an opportunity to sort of debrief what they'd heard. Um, so they sort of saw us in action with a few people as well. But I think that's the the incredible um, part of being of doing advocacy work. Is I mean it can be very painful sometimes, but you also get to see people who who for the first time in their life, they meet somebody who um, has experienced many of the same things they have, they have in their life. And um, they feel connected all of a sudden for the first time instead of being, feel marginalized and misunderstood. So, but, so, so those were the things that I had a tremendous amount of fun um, watching that meeting happen, and I keep hoping that our in-person program can we can get our schedule such that people will actually attend 
the family sessions and get credit for it. But we, you and I have, we've got some work to do on that. Well, it's really motivational and, and inspirational to hear you discuss it. Um, Dr. Edmondson, uh, you know, before we wrap up the episode, the, the last question that I wanted to ask you is, um, you know, you've, you've had a, just an amazing career and it, it continues with your work today still and on into the future. But I have to ask you, what is, what is the one thing that you identify as the professional accomplishment that you're most proud of? Um, um, I took care of a lady who came to see me who was just really suffering. I mean, she was suicidal. She'd already figured out how to jump out of her window. Um, Her husband was struggling to understand what was wrong with her. She had two small kids at home. I saw her first in the Duke clinic with Bert Scott and um, Bert asked us to kind of keep an eye on her and see what we could do to help her. And so I sort of managed her psychiatric meds and when we needed them to help us with motor symptoms, we would collaborate with them. But for the most part, we, we looked after um, her and the process she went through to get tested for Huntington's. And um, she, the, the day that she came to get her results, so we had her, her test drawn at Duke, um, but she wanted us to tell her the results. So she came to our offices for her result. Um, and, you know, Bert was great to work with that way because he, he always wanted what the patient wanted. Um, and I really admire that about him. But anyway, um, so she came into the office, you know, scared like anybody else is on a day they know they're going to get results. And, you know, I sat down and I told her her results and that she was a mutation carrier and that a lot of the symptoms that she was having were because of that. And um I, you know, you expect it in somebody that's had that many problems, even before they know they're diagnosed, to for it to be really difficult. But she was just fantastic with it. And she walked out and she said, you know, I never dreamed that hearing that I had Huntington's would be a day where I actually felt better. But she said, but I do, I do, I feel better now. And that to me is like the goal. That is the goal is for someone to feel so supported and so ready that getting the diagnosis actually is relieving, that the the uncertainty is finally over and your deepest fear, whatever it might be, often is around learning that you have Huntington's and, you know, am I going to go off the deep end? What, you know, what's going to, how am I going to react? Is it, you know, am I going to lose my my sanity just by knowing. Um, but I, th- I think we know that's not what happens anymore. People do fine with understanding this, this information and if they're ready. And, you know, Sarah and I helped her get ready and Bert and his team helped her get ready so that when she found out, she was really confident she was going to have people help her. And her husband was confident. 
And she, you know, was beginning to see Huntington's through a lens um, that wasn't so depressed. It wasn't so bleak and dismal and desperate. She saw that it was going to be, you know, she was going to be okay and that her kids were going to be okay and her husband was going to be okay. And so it wasn't the horrible moment she thought it was going to be. And in fact, it was relieving. So that was a real, real, that was a real privilege to be there and see that. It was a privilege to see her grow and get better, all because she, it was all her decision. You know, we were just sitting there watching it, but how she chose to handle Huntington's was completely her choice. And she, you know, she executed her choice. So I would have to say that was really a highlight for me. Well, I appreciate you sharing that story, Dr. Edmondson. And, you know, just want to thank you for all the years that you've put in and the, and the work you're currently doing to help make a difference uh, for families dealing with, with HD. And also, you know, just to thank all the, the caregivers out there, especially in these, you know, more challenging times than, than usual, um, you know, to try and stay motivated and, and keep it upbeat and focus on the things that need to be done. But most of all, Dr. Edmondson, I, I want to thank you for joining the podcast today and, and sharing all of your stories with us. Yeah, my pleasure. It's nice to, you know, don't often um, get asked about your own story. And a lot of people are reluctant to tell some of their own personal stories. But I, you know, I figure that um, the heart of why people do things is kind of important to know. And I, I have to say that the people that, the faculty that I work with, and the people that I know in the Huntington study group uh, have shared their stories with me about why working with Huntington's families is so important to them. And their stories are, are incredibly inspiring too. They, you know, they might not come from a Huntington's family, but they, they have some collateral experience that they can apply. And so it's, I actually am amazed by most of them. So thanks for including me in this podcast. It's kind of cool. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Dr. Mary Edmondson. Again, I can't thank her enough for sharing her story with us and providing some amazing perspectives. These are trying times around the world, and hopefully this podcast provided a brief break from everything. I, I did want to follow up and provide a website link, though, if you are interested in taking the CME for HD online courses that Dr. Edmondson spoke about. To do so, go to www dot huntington study group dot org slash cme the number four hd dash online uh, there you'll find steps to register now these courses are free to take and healthcare providers can also earn continuing education credits for completing them if you are a researcher advocate or provider working in huntington disease and have an interesting story to share or want to share that story, or if you know someone we should profile on a future episode, please feel free to reach out to me at kevin.gregory at hsglimited.org. Let us know what you're working on or how your efforts can help make a difference for those affected by Huntington disease. I can't promise we'll be able to get 
to all of them, but we want to keep providing as much content as possible as we navigate these complex times. So until next time on the HD Insights Podcast, again, I'm Kevin Gregory. Thank you for spending time with us. Stay safe, be well, look out for each other, and we look forward to bringing you our next episode. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the HD Insights Podcast. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to make sure you automatically get the latest episodes to your device. Please rate and review this podcast with your feedback so we can continue providing the best possible content. If you are interested in providing financial support for the work needed to produce this content, you can do so by becoming an ongoing sponsor or through a tax-deductible donation. To do so, please email us at info at hsglimited.org. That's I-N-F-O at hsglimited.org. Or by calling our toll-free number at 1-800-487-7671. Thank you for joining us on the HD Insights Podcast from the Huntington Study Group.